Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with Chicago-based comedian and musician Haji Outlaw. He is a comedian in the vein of Mitch Hedberg, Dave Chappelle, Stephen Wright, and Bill Burr. His unique brand of intelligent comedy is reflected in his music, books, and conversation. Specifically, his journey living in Hollywood and cracking into television. He's written for TV, which includes Comedy Central, NBC, and CBS. He's written for film, commercials, and a number of books. He has also produced music for Cool Keith, Chris Crack, and himself, not to mention being a comedian for over 15 years. Other than that, he prefers to be a mystery. Enjoy this interview. Morning. How you doing? How's life? Yeah, not bad. Pretty good. How are you? Oh, everything's good. Everything. Where are you located? I'm in Chicago. Right on. I love that town. Oh, nice. It's one of my favorites. Um, you know, and it's and it's one of those kind of like smaller versions of New York that's attainable from Kansas City. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not as quite as fast paced. Like you can get along. There's decent people, not a bunch of a holes. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Yeah. Well, man, it's great to meet you. Thanks for taking a minute out. And you know, before we hop in your life and comedy and everything that makes you who you are i want to know how did you survive the last three years with COVID? how did you get through it and how has it changed the way that you do things now oh um surviving the year with COVID. that's uh that's a lot of different things creatively i was able to write more often but it, it kind of i used to live in la so it caused me to move to chicago uh just for the people i knew in la they were still gonna hire me no matter what so i didn't so it caused me to move and then just being able to put more stuff out, but being kind of smarter about the way I put it out. So it's kind of just like a, I guess, a, a rechange for the format of getting creative material out. That's probably been the biggest thing. So are you happy with the changes? Has it made you a stronger organism? Uh, I think so. Um, I'll definitely get a chance to do more more different things and kind of go in different avenues. But between like music, stand-up, and writing stuff. Like I was just meeting, I was on the road and I met a buddy in Nashville this past week. So we got, he's got a deal. He wants to bring me in, and we got a bunch of other stuff. The writer strike is kind of pulling us back from doing that right now. But uh, so yeah, yeah. Do you see any daylight with that strike? Um, y- yes and no. I think they pretty much have to f- close it up by the end of this year. Uh, otherwise, like network TV is screwed if they don't if they don't close it up this this year. Um, and I know AMC already struck a deal with the writers and the actors guild. Uh, so I think other networks will start doing that. The biggest problem is just like Netflix and Amazon who seem like they, the big streamers is a lot budget all. Um, but I think they're going to have to eventually. Yeah, for sure. Um, and all, it almost reminds me of like the teaching profession. Um, you know, these teachers just, especially now coming out of this whole COVID period and the kids that are stunted, it's <laughs> like, they're, they're just not getting what they're worth. And I, you know, it's the whole adage, you know, I, I'm not I'm not saying anything new, but it's it's kind of that whole thing. So let me ask you this. When you were in the mm. let me let me ask you this. If you were to be in front of a bunch of mm. third graders right now and one of the kids yeah. looked up and said, hey, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that child? Um, well, it's kind of twofold because I have a regular day job and then I also write and do music. And so I'd say my regular day job is I'm a, basically a sales technician engineer. Okay. Uh, for a company. And then outside of that, writing and comedy and music. You know, I, I listen to Rogan enough to, to just kind of, he talks about the comedic world a lot. 
What is that like? What was the first time that you hopped on stage and tried to tell a joke? And, and how did you gain steam and get to a point where it was a comfortable thing? Oh, uh, first time was at Riddle's Comedy Club in Orland Park, uh, kind of south, just outside the city, south of Chicago. Um, and what kind of got me into that was I was dating a girl at the time, and she had tickets to go see The Roots. And I told her I can't go because I want to try stand-up. She's like, you're going to pass up on a Roots concert? I was like, yeah. And I enjoyed it. The first joke really worked, and I just kept kept at it. And it was probably two years or so where I was like, okay, I think I got some momentum. I think I can go somewhere with this. Yeah. Um, so that was the kickoff point, Riddle's Comedy Club. So when you were a kid in the third grade, what did you want to be when you grew up? Mm-hmm. What was your dream? Oh, baseball player. Okay. That was it. Who? Yeah, who, uh, I played baseball since – go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, you're good. Oh, uh, since first grade, uh, when I first went to the first grade, we ended up becoming my best friend, Bobby. I found out that he played baseball, so I came home and told my mom I need to go play baseball. And so she signed me up for the baseball, and that was that was it. I was hooked. Played unto played got scholarships to college. Played through for four years of college. That was that was all I wanted to do. Okay. So what happened? Did you want to did you want to go to the pro? I mean, what? How did that? How did you? How did you get into the arts versus being a, a player? Um, it was actually pretty simple. Where like I had. I had the talent for it, and I was guys who played professionally who I was better than and played against and beat. But it was just like poor, I guess, poor connections and poor coaching. Like my college coaches were at Florida A&M were not good okay. and very unhelpful. Um, so that's part of it. Also, I didn't have like a Shaquille O'Neal-like talent where I'm you know, blowing 100 miles per hour or anything. Yeah. Um, but the way I kind of got out of that was I always loved sports and music. So around my second or third year of college, I got these CD turntables, so I started being a DJ. And after that, I started getting the beat machine and doing more stuff in that area. And I'd always, I was always a goofball on the team. Uh, we'd be cracking jokes and making up nicknames and all that stuff. So naturally, I was always kind of good at writing stuff on the fly. And then kind of just after I got out of college and got a regular job, I was like, well, this regular job kind of sucks. I don't really like talking in front of people, but I, I'd rather – do this comedy stuff and be nervous doing that all the time than this regular job crap. For sure. Who was your baseball player? Who was the go-to guy that you always looked up to? Um, in Little League, it was probably Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Uh, I used to love, I used to love the A, so Jose Canseco. He was also my guy there. Um, Eric Davis on the Reds, Barry Larkin, because I played shortstop. Yeah. Um, in Little League, those were my guys. And then later on, when I became like, the only a pitcher in college, it was like Kevin Brown and Pedro Martinez. Okay. So if you could go back in time and see any moment in baseball history with your own eyes, where are you going? Oh, that's a lot of them. Um, trying to think of one great one. Uh, ooh, actually, there's, there's, there's a lot of them. You got Jackie Robinson breaking in, Ken Griffey Jr.'s first game, because I had his rookie card. Love that guy. Um, perfect game from Don Larson in the World Series. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a there's a lot of them. There's just a lot. Like, yeah, I, I can't I can't really I can't really nail one down. Yeah, 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 you can't do that right down to one. So, talk to me a little bit yeah. about where you were born and raised, and how these seeds got into you to want to be in sports and to want to be an artist and perform. What? How did that happen? Um, okay, basically, I grew up on South Side of Chicago. And I was kind of always a bit introverted, so I used to draw a lot, and I used to write a lot as a kid. And the way I got into sports was just kids in the neighborhood. We'd play, you know, like uh, 
pick up football, basically. You play the game called Killer Man. Basically, you throw the ball up, and whichever the furthest direction is to the touchdown, that's the direction you have to run, and everybody tries to tackle <laughs> So, yeah, it's called Killer Man. We played that all the time. And then I played baseball because I had first grade had jumped into baseball. And, like, we played stickball in the neighborhood because, like, when I moved to the town home right behind Hyde Park High School, there was a bunch of kids in that area. So we played baseball or football pretty much year-round. So that's how I got into that. And then for comedy-wise, I was a guy who always loved stand-up comedy. For some reason, I always loved stuff that was really honest uh, or, like, not kind of corrupted, like, objective metrics. Like, okay, this guy's funny or these guys has this kind of stats, like that's legitimate. Um, so I always loved comedy, loved watching it. And I remember my mom was t- finishing up one of her, her first PhD. So I stayed at my aunt's place when I was probably like, I don't know, second grade or second or third grade or something like that. And I remember I'd always fall asleep on the floor on the couch and I get waken up by Johnny Carson's the music. And I'd watch it. And I remember seeing Eddie Murphy on there with this little skinny tie. I'm like, I've never seen a skinny tie. And I was like, this guy's really funny. So a couple of years later, he was he was huge. And uh, I wanted to go see Eddie Murphy Raw. Oh, man. And I believe I was eight or nine years old at the time. And my mom, she, she loved Richard Pryor. So she knew exactly what his act was for Eddie Murphy. And she's like, no, you're not going to go see Eddie Murphy. Uh, but I was with my dad that weekend. I don't know if he didn't know who Eddie Murphy was or didn't care. He's like, sure, we'll go see it. And he took me to go see that. And I was like, I remember 15 minutes in the movie, I looked over at him, just gave him a look like, I should not be watching this. <laughs> but I, I, ended up, I loved it. Uh, so that, that, that was kind of my kickoff point right there, I guess, for comedy. Yeah, that's that was the iconic thing. That That's probably for comedians. That's probably one of the top things, top performances ever, you know? Oh, yeah. That, that and Delirious, yeah, to, to the yeah. biggest. Yeah. So who's been a hero for you in your life? Um, Hero for me in my life? Um. In part, my mom, she's great. Uh, but besides that, I don't think I really have exact, I have heroes for like things people have done, but not like as overall, like this person is a hero. Like I love Dave Chappelle, all his comedy, but I don't like know him personally. I don't know his whole personal life to call him a hero. Um, I still love Pedro Martinez. I read his autobiography. He seems like a great dude. I love his pitching style and his aggressiveness, everything about him. Um, so I guess I wouldn't have one person and I, think it probably starts from Jose Canseco was my favorite baseball player. And then I learned later on, like, oh, this guy was on every kind of steroid you could possibly use. Uh, so I think that type of stuff kind of chipped away at my idea of like, oh, this person is a hero. I should look up to them for everything. It's more like I want to look at like, oh, he's a great hitter or you're great at X, Y, Z or Jerry Seinfeld's a great writer or Tina Fey's a great writer, something like that where I could like, okay, I, you're a hero for that particular thing, but I'm not going to give you like a hero title. Like you're a, a overall hero in everything you do in life. You know, it's weird. I was talking to my stepdaughter. She's a big fan of the 70, that, that 70s show. And I was talking about that Danny <laughs> story. And I was Masterson. like, yeah, yeah, the Masterson, you know, I'm wondering, we're entering this phase of our lives with cancel culture and all of this, where these people are making these decisions that are kind of tainting the things that we've watched and we've looked into. And I find that to be a weird phenomenon because there's a lot of people up to this point, you know, whether it's Kevin Spacey or whoever it is that's made these decisions. Mm -hmm. And how do you go about getting into their art and separating the person from the art? You know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of a weird juxtaposition in modern life. Yeah. um, I actually have no problem 
whatsoever with it. Just because I think I'm a naturally a pessimistic person. Yeah. So when these things come out, it, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember I had openly made, like, I made jokes on stage about, like, can we get the Cosby show back on TV? Just to, just give me the rerun back. I, we all know he's a, he's a serial rapist, but, like, it's a, it's still a great show. I, I still, I still want to watch the show. Yeah. And there's, and then you'd see, like, I'm just kind of sadistic like that. There's little things where he had, like, his special barbecue sauce that he give, like, the family the sauce, and then all of a sudden, everyone get really horny, and I'm like, he was kind of giving you clues. Yeah, right, he was. Doing. I find that, <laughs> I, I like, I find that hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I got no problem separating. Like, Kevin Spacey, I know a guy, this is a funny story. Um, I understand, I, I heard rumors about Kevin Spacey a little bit, but I, I, I met a guy when I was working in LA. He was, uh, best friends in the wedding of Brandon Ruth, who starred in, uh, he played Superman in the movie where Kevin Spacey was Lex Luthor. Yeah. And he talked about, he, he, he typed in with Brandon Ruth a little, Brandon was telling his buddy all the time, he's like, uh, this director, Brian Singer, is trying to screw me every time. Like, he wants me to go to his room and try on the uniform. He's trying to bang me. And he kept, he complained about how bad Brian Singer was. And at no point did his friend ever say Kevin Spacey was a problem. And I was just like, now I'm like, I'm back like, holy crap, how bad was Brian Singer that Kevin Spacey was not an issue? Yeah. Like, I'm like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm sure I've heard multiple things about Spacey, but. I I don't put a lot of work not not a lot of work but I don't put it as bad just because he's a middle aged guy hitting on other guys like there there's a physical dynamic difference where like Cosby's you know drugging him Harvey Weinstein's you know two hundred and eighty pound huge guy and he's dealing with twenty year old actresses who are about a hundred pounds that's you know it's that's that's even more horrible to me yeah um yeah. Yeah, it's wild, man. Yeah, it's just, it's it, this modern living, man. There's so many levels and fences and walls and things that we just didn't have to think about when we were growing up. It just wasn't a part of just kind of our psyche, so to speak. Um, yeah. So if you can meet anybody alive on the planet right now, one person and spend some time with them, who would it be? Dead or alive? Uh, we'll open it up to everybody, yeah. Okay, Prince. Prince is my favorite musical artist. I've read so many stuff, so many things about him, seen so many stuff about him. I know a couple of guys who have met him. That's the one guy I'd like to sit down and have a conversation with about his life, his career, his philosophy, um, everything, basically everything he does. Yeah, that's, that's probably the one guy. There was a, you know, I, I cover jazz, um, jazz radio. I have a jazz radio show and interview musicians. And there was a cat that came through. I think it was Victor Wooten, bass player. And he played at one of our venues and he was, he had a relationship with Prince and he said, one time he saw Prince walk up and he said, I have never seen a sexier man in my entire life. Cause he had the high heels. He came in, he said, dude, like there was something about him that just like transcended gender, transcended anything. He just came up and there was this energy that came off of him. And I always remember that story about, you know, just seeing Prince and how he did it. Cause he was kind of a smaller dude, you know, but he just oh, yeah. took over the room when he came in, you know? So, um, yeah, he just had that presence and the idea that he could wear like shawls and lace underwear and heels. And yeah. he still, you look back in the eighties and nineties, every hot woman in that area, he was basically with them at uh-huh. some point or another. Like uh-huh. this guy was getting guys by like five, 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 four, you yeah. all these super hot women. And he's basically wearing women's clothes half the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that's mind blowing to me. Yeah. Yeah. He was just, he had that yeah. cool about him for sure. Um, yeah. So, 
what is it about what you do for a living? What's the motivator? What's the thing that gets you out of bed? What what makes you want to be who you are and accomplish what you want to get done? Um, just doing a good job on whatever subject matter or whatever the thing is I'm doing, whether it be music production or writing comedy. I'm just doing the best I possibly can. And hopefully at some point being once again, fully out of a regular job and not have to have a regular job while I'm doing this. So, you know, as a creative, you obviously are diversified. There's things, there's a lot of things that are on your radar of what you do. If you had right now an agent that says, I need to whittle you down to one thing and we're going for it. What are you going to do? Uh, Probably television writing, television writing or stand up. Um, But the only thing is with stand up, it's it's so weird. You basically have to be an actor at least to get your foot in that door to the point where you can headline gigs where you have to have TV appearances. Um, That's that's the that's the tough part about doing stand up or someone has to kind of pull you in. Um, So I would say TV writing. So of all of the things that you've done in your life creatively, what's been one of the best fan responses that you've ever gotten? Uh, best fan responses is probably, uh, hmm. Well, I'll tell you the most entertaining one was like one of the first times I was bombing. Uh, it was University of Illinois and it was like a black college reunion weekend. So it was like classes from like the nineties, two thousands, maybe the eighties. And I did, it was a week, I remember it was a week Obama was elected and none of my jokes worked, none of them. And I basically had to end every joke by saying, we got Obama, right? That was the only thing that got any real, like, real applause. Uh, and I remember afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, we thought you were like the anti-comedy. And I was like, okay, I'm just waiting for my check to get out of here. So that one, I remember that was an experience where I was like, after that, I wasn't really worried about doing anything. So I'm like, I can't bomb worse than that with about 1,200 people uh, who think, thought I was the anti-comedy. Um, but as far as positive, positive stuff, it was probably for screenplays I've written um, where people were like, I wrote one where a couple producers told me this is excellent. And this is before his whole, his whole cancel culture came in. They were like, you should get this to Louis CK. He'd be perfect for this. Um, he never, he never ended up reading it. He, he actually, I got it to him, but he said, I can't read anything right now. He was, it was like the second or third season of his Louis show on FX. So he's like, I just don't have time. I, I can't do it. Um, but like, that was probably one of the best. I'm like, Louis, like, cause he was on fire at that point. I'm like, Oh, yeah. that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Louie won't come to Kansas City, man. He talks bad about us. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but he, he's 86 Kansas City, which at this point now, it probably really doesn't matter. But at his height, I think he was on with Leno or one of those cats. And he was like, yeah, I, I can't do Kansas City. And it just really like railed on us bad. It was very strange. So yeah. Yeah. But it happens. I mean, some people just have experiences in cities and it's like, I'm out. I get it. You know, I don't take it personally. It's just the way it is. But um, so of all of the things that you've created, artistically speaking, what are you the proudest of? Mm -hmm. Ooh, um, the proudest is probably my writing for stand up. How how, like in my opinion, how sharp. That's probably the proudest thing of how I approach jokes and how I attack jokes um, kind of methodically. But like, that's probably the proudest thing I am of that because that's. Of all the areas, that's when you're doing stand-up, even though it's written good, you have to perform it good. You have to be live. Um, so everything else, like TV writing, 
you know, you can edit that down and get other writers to punch it up. Same thing with screenplays. Uh, music wise, you can always tweak something, change the sound, but stand up's really pure. Uh, and that you can't go back and edit and change, change as much stuff. So I'm probably most proud of that. When did the best ideas come? Is it a middle of the night driving your car? What, what, what moments <clears throat> does, does uh, really, ideas gravitate? It, it can be anytime. Normally I don't write anything at night. I know a couple of times I've been driving back from gigs and just my mind is kind of still going. And I'll be like, that's a good idea. And I'll jot it down or punch it in my phone or something. Um, but it's really any, any type of time. Um, normally I always, I never write at night. I only write during the day, but an idea can pop up anytime. It might be first thing in the morning. It might be before I go to bed. It could be anytime. So let's say you have a dream tonight. You run into a 20 year old version mm-hmm. of yourself and you could give that younger version mm-hmm. of you a piece of advice based on the life you've led, the wisdom you've gained. What would you tell that young version of you? Don't listen to people who are older than you and believe that they know what they're talking about. Uh, listen to your gut and do what you feel is right. Uh, I'd say that would probably be the biggest thing. I, I listen to people who, as I went on, I found out, oh, you really don't know what you're talking about. I don't really know how you got in that position. I don't know connections or whatever or who you were sleeping with that you got this power position, but you really don't know what you're talking about. So that'd be the number one. Trust your gut. Don't listen to these idiots just because they're old doesn't mean they're wise. Yeah, that's such good advice. So let's let's kind of flip the table a little bit on that. What is the best advice you've ever gotten that you've always remembered that's been the most beneficial for you? Oh, um, I think the best advice was probably from one of the not good people. I had a coach, Matt Palencia, in high school, and I was starting on varsity since the end of my freshman year playing third base. And I remember I had a bad game or something, and uh, he, he was not a – a good dude. He ended up getting fired, but he had great advice. He said, he said, if you don't hustle every chance you get on this field, you never know who's watching you. So everything you do, if you're playing great or you're playing terrible, hustle, run hard, play hard all the time when you're on the field. That was probably the best advice. And I was like, yes, that's, that's actually great. That's, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah. So everyone out there has a perception of you. You have all these pockets, whether it's your day job as a musician, as a comedian, writer, but ultimately, mm-hmm. family, friends, they all have this idea of who they think you are. But you run the show. What's your perception yeah. of you? Who do you think you are? Oh, um, a quiet guy who doesn't like expressing too many emotions. Uh, that would be my perception of myself. Like, I'm kind of weird. And like, I enjoy talking about stuff I want to talk about, like television, movies, stand-up, sports, that type of stuff. But if it's not that, I really don't enjoy chiming in for stuff like that um it's i guess i'm very selective about who i choose to talk to uh yeah that that, that'd be that'd be about me so as somebody that lives in chicago and somebody here that loves chicago what do you love the best about that city um a lot of things um location you're kind of in the middle of everything so it's, it's not too long to get to new york not too long to get to la not too long to get anywhere the people are good. Um, it's sort of like a, a slightly nicer version of New York. Um, I love New York because the people will tell you if you're great or if you suck. Um, while people in the Midwest, Chicago area will kind of tell you that, but they'll try and put a positive spin on it. Yeah. Like there's no unruly, there's no truly unruly fans in Chicago as opposed to someone like New York or Boston where they're like, you know, throwing snowballs at Santa Claus because they're pissed. Um, so I like that aspect of it. 
I like that you got you got a large body of water right there with Lake Michigan. There's plenty of stuff to do. It's also can you can like drive out a little bit. You can be in a really uh, kind of rural area really quickly. Only thing I don't like there's no mountains. It's just all flat, yeah. which is one thing I liked about California, where like you had this topography that was great. You can be in the flat here by the shore, you go in two hours, and you're up in the mountains. Yeah. So I, I really like that aspect of California. I miss that with being a Kansas City, being landlocked, man. It's so hard. No ocean, no mountains, you know, but, um, yeah. but it is convenient. You can, you're right in the middle. So it's easy to get out and about. So, hey, man, if anyone wants to learn more about you, pick up anything that you've done creatively, your world, your life, where can they go? Uh, you can go to Amazon.com for anything I've written. Uh, just type my name in, Haji Outlaw. Uh, other than that, you can just uh, follow me on Instagram, on Twitter. I'm at Outlaw Haji. Uh, that's really, you can find anything I'm doing right there. You got a great name, man. Great stage name, Haji Thank Outlaw. You. It's so great, you know. But this has been great, man. I, I got to tell you real quick before we get off, you mentioned Conseco. Sure. When I was a kid, my best friend and I, we used to write all the baseball players in the 80s. And we'd handwrite letters to him to get autographs. And we used to start calling him, too. And I remember I got Conseco on the phone. We found out where their hotel was <clears> in Kansas City. And, man, he, he <clears> answered <throat> the phone. He's all groggy. I'm like, hey, Jose, will you sign a baseball card if I send it in the mail? And he's just kind of like, I could feel him take the phone away. Like, what the hell's going on here? And he just came back and he said, yeah, man, I'll <laughs> sign your card and hung up. And that was it. But I always remember... <laughs> You know, I woke the dude up. He didn't know who I was. I'm 12. My voice is cracking and he's cool with me. So, um, and and I think there's a part of Conseco's karma that may be redeemed because he's the one that really officially blew the whistle. As much as he pissed everybody off, he was the one that put himself out there and said, you know what? There's a problem and I'm going to be the guy. So I don't think it's going to clean all of his legacy up, but I think he did a little bit of karmic good by doing that, you know? So. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And he's been really honest. He, he said A-Rod was on steroids from the beginning. Yeah. He attested, like, he said Jeter, Jeter's just a clean cut, great guy. So he's been 99.9% of the time, he's been dead on the money with everything. Yeah, absolutely. He yeah. Has. Well, hey, man, thank you, man. Thank you for opening up. Thanks for your story. Best of luck with everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. So do you have any plans on coming through and doing any comedy in Kansas City? Uh, I'd love to. Um, I know once I've been there a couple of times. I forgot the comedy club. It was, I think it was around. This was a long time ago. It was like a showcase or something for, uh, just for laughs. That was the last time I was out there. Okay. Um, this has been over 10, over, well, over 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I, I had a couple of buddies who went to, uh, University of Kansas. So I visited them out there. Was that Overland or oh, Lawrence? I, Lawrence. Lawrence. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so. So I, the last time I did that drive was to Kansas City to that comedy club. Um, but I, I like to, but I got no plans locked in right now. Okay, well, I'll keep my eyes out. I'd love to see you live, man. Cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Music.